stories we tell ourselves. It's a new episode of Leaning Toward Wisdom, the podcast. Permit a couple of scriptures. Romans 12, 2. Be not fashioned according to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Mind transformation. It's not just a religious thing. It's a human being thing because, well, God created us in his image. Fascinating thing about this to me is not that we're godlike because we aren't and yet we are we're created in the image of god i don't fully understand everything that that means but i can grasp some major chunks of what it means for starters the entire creation event shows us the power of god to think in advance to first see it in his mind we have that ability God created the universe and the earth by thinking it into existence. We don't have God's power, so we're not able to do that physically. But because we are in his image, we can pre-think something before it ever becomes reality. Let's talk about the stories we tell ourselves. Greetings and welcome inside the Yellow Studio. Coming to you from Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas. My name is Randy Cantrell. I'm your host here. You will find the website at leaningtowardwisdom.com. Modern Tales of an Ancient Pursuit. In January 2017, the New Yorker published a story. It was entitled The Voices in Our Head. Why do people talk to themselves and when does it become a problem? <laughs> do you talk to yourself? I do. It could be argued. I'm talking to myself right now. Ah, but you make all the difference. See, that would be true if you weren't there, but you're there. There you are with your earbuds in your ear. What are your, do you have AirPods? I don't have AirPods. Maybe you've got air. Maybe you, maybe you're an Android user. And you don't even subscribe to the whole Apple ecosystem. But I'm glad that you're here. Glad that you clicked play. The Voices in Our Head is the article. Again, January 2017, The New Yorker. And the author of the piece, he mentions literally talking to ourselves. Again, something that some of us do, others of us don't. Um, you know, neither one makes us any saner, I don't suppose, than the rest. It's an interesting article, even if it is a bit off track from how we're going to discuss this inner voice that each of us has, this voice that we encounter every day, multiple times in a day. Anytime I give thought to stories that we tell ourselves, I think of that John Sebastian song written back in 1974, Stories We Could Tell. The opening line is talking to myself again and wondering if this traveling is good. Is there something else of doing we'd be doing if we could? 
many, many people have covered that song. You know, whether you talk to yourself verbally out loud and yep, I admit sometimes I do, or whether you are talking to yourself silently in your head, which I'm supposing all of us do, you still are talking to yourself. You are still telling stories to yourself. And some of us, well, some of us are, we're more verbose in our talking to ourselves uh, than others because, well, just some of us are just more verbose, period. What, what we tell ourselves, the stories we tell ourselves. And so the issue isn't whether or not we're talking to ourselves because we are. The question, I think, rather, is what are we saying? What is that? What is the story? And maybe another question is, and why? Why that story? You know, by introducing mind transformation, hopefully you will consider if you aren't already convinced that, you know, barring some sort of challenge and that challenge could be mental illness. It could be PTSD. It could be some other issue that requires professional assistance, which we are absolutely not qualified to offer here. And we are not offering any professional advice here when it comes to mental health. But we are in control of ourselves and we are, well, it's equally important that we are in control of the thoughts that we have. Again, barring some challenge for which we need some professional help. That means mind transformation is possible. Okay, but what is it? Well, simply put, it means that you can control what you think about. You can control how you think about something. You can control what you focus on. You can control what you ignore. You are responsible for your own life. First, by being responsible for your own thoughts. I know it's not the popular viewpoint because we want to blame other people. It's, it's, it's just the whole woke thing is really, I find it really fascinating. I find it really fascinating that people can feel threatened that people can feel afraid for things that, you know, I mean, I, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand what you're afraid of. There was a big podcaster conference here in Dallas. I, I didn't attend. I attended the first one and I'm, I'm not a big conference attender kind of a guy. It's just not my thing. Uh, but evidently daily wire had a booth at this thing. Well, daily wire is, uh, you can Google if you're not familiar with it, but Ben Shapiro and Matt Walsh are a couple of big hitters in the Daily Wire ecosystem, along with Dr. Jordan Peterson. I am a fan of all three, by the way. And it's very clear that they've got a huge, huge following and a huge number of people who are supportive and like-minded, but they also have a rather large number of people that are not. So they have this booth. Ben Shapiro evidently shows up at this conference, and depending on the account that you listen to and the people that you follow that you trust, eh, a couple of people really got their nose bent out of shape. And one lady in particular took such umbrage at Ben Shapiro's mere physical presence. She did not feel safe. Now, Ben Shapiro, if you can follow Ben Shapiro, you can Google Ben Shapiro, you can look all over the web on Ben Shapiro, and you can find a whole lot of stuff. What you won't find is you won't find Ben Shapiro threatening. You won't find Ben Shapiro physically engaging. You won't, you know, and I'm like, okay. 
I did have to comment on one of the threads about it. I'm I'm a fan of all three, but I am in no way traumatized. And that was a word being thrown about that people were, a few people were traumatized by Ben Shapiro's presence. I'm like, you know, opposing viewpoints don't traumatize me. And I don't particularly think I'm special. I don't particularly think that I'm just the rock solid bastion of, of mental health strength necessarily, but I mean, I'm sorry. It's Ben Shapiro. I follow. I'm interested. I find him super bright and I'm curious, but Ben Shapiro is not responsible for my life. He's not responsible for my thoughts. He's not responsible for my choices. He certainly is not responsible for threatening my safety simply because he is breathing air, but to each his own. I know we're living in this age where we love to blame and we love to point fingers and we want to, we want to assess the blame for anything and everything going wrong in our life on somebody else. You know, sometimes your life is a wreck because you're a wreck. Sometimes your life is a wreck because you've just been foolish and stupid and the line forms behind me. We've all done it. Those of us that are leaning toward wisdom, it's not the it's not that we've never been foolish. It's that we are working diligently to recover. We're trying to repent. That is, we're trying to let go of the foolishness and not go back to it, not return to it and press on and get better and better and better. And oh, by the way, we're happy to look in the mirror and say, I own this. I own this might not have been responsible for everything that's happened to me, but Okay, now what? I certainly own that. Rhonda and I were in the car. We're talking about the choices that people make, the foolish choices. You know, somebody's infidelity in their marriage. That was prompting this topic. And we were talking about how poor choices happen. And I made a remark. And I said, speaking about the unfaithful spouse, I said, you know, they think about it. They decide they want it. And they act on it. And I guess to them, at least in that moment, it seems like a good idea. You know, kind of like a person who steals or robs and they find themselves needing money. And immediately they start thinking about, well, who, who, or how can I rob somebody? Thankfully, most of us, we don't immediately go to those thoughts because, well, most of us are not thieves and robbers. Instead, we likely think of, you know, what have I got that I could sell? Or maybe we think about how we might be able to find a job, a better job, or an additional job. And that cliche leaps to our mind, if it is to be, it's up to me. You know, I've heard that phrase for as long as I can remember. And it's intended in part to be empowering. If it is to be, it's up to me. It's to help encourage us to be proactive. But more deeply... It signifies that we have the ability, we have the opportunity to pre-think our lives. We can see our future before it happens. Mentally, we can make it whatever we want. That doesn't mean it's going to happen the way we think. It doesn't mean that we can think it into existence. Only God can do that. But it does mean that we are able, as creatures in his image, able to think ahead of time and to behave with the intentions based on how we're thinking. Animals behave with instincts. 
they act, they react based on those instincts to eat, to rest, to reproduce humans. We have this capacity that they don't have to insert ourselves mentally into situations that we have never before encountered. We can run scenarios in our heads and we can think about possible outcomes. It it's, it's the real analog version of a spreadsheet. And we've all got the ability to think this way. We can think and our thinking determines our actions, our behavior, our choices. You know, people love to quote the first part of Proverbs 23, seven, even non-religious people love to quote Proverbs 23, seven for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he, but the verse goes on to say, eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. The real meaning of the verse is that the way a man thinks is really who he is. It's not saying, well, you just think it and it'll happen for you. No, the way we think that's really who we are. We can say something different, but what we're thinking is really who we are. He says, come on, eat and drink, but he really doesn't want you to. He's a hypocrite. And so it's absolutely true that if we want to be better humans, then we have to have better thoughts. Life is largely an exercise of our minds. The stories we tell ourselves, they're very, very important. And they include the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. They also include the stories we tell ourselves about others. Let's start with others because through the years of reading and studying human behavior, I've come to understand that what we tell ourselves, it does have an external component. Namely, we largely learn how to tell ourselves our own story. And part of that learning comes from others and the things that happen to us, external things. I was in the fifth grade. I was a good student, which meant I made good grades and I behaved myself. He was in my class, but he was constantly in trouble. Class clown worked overly hard to be funny. Sometimes he succeeded. Many times he did not. I can't be sure, but I think I overheard two teachers talking about how he had been a bad student since the second grade. We were in fifth grade. I remember wondering, is he really a bad student? I mean, based on the results, he clearly was, or I wondered was was he just meeting these expectations that these teachers had had for him since the second grade? It seems to me, even as a fifth grader, they had pegged him as one thing. And it just seemed almost too obvious to me that he was writing the story that they had helped craft about him. I mean, what did I know? I'm only 11. Some years later, I would read stories about this very thing though, particularly in education. So a kid doesn't do very well in class and maybe one year of school, just for whatever reason, he's off. And from that point forward, struggles, just struggles to escape that gravitational pull of the reputation among faculty. Well, I would watch and I would listen to the interaction between teachers and these kids, these kids that were dubbed the ne'er-do-wells and, and some of them admittedly were, but it, I don't know. My curiosity made me wonder, but I would, I would listen and watch these interactions. And of course, for a kid like me, I, I would just cringe 
because I would, I would think, man, if that were me, I would so want to crawl under a rock. I mean, if I was the aim of a teacher's anger or frustration or even a teacher's annoyance, I, that was not a good feeling for, for me. I don't get me wrong. I knew these kids were disruptive. I knew that some of them, maybe many of them were often rebellious. There's little doubt. Some of them were extraordinary troublemakers, but it seemed to me that there were some that were just cleverly mischievous. You know, I mean, I never got in trouble in class. Getting in trouble in class just did not cross my mind. It may have been my first sober thoughts about the stories that others tell about us and how we are able to do the same. We can either agree like maybe the student who's not particularly a great student, but not nearly as bad a student as faculty might label that kid. And now they're just, they're living up to the expectation or down. We think things about people. And maybe like my classmates, they're based on poor behavior. Maybe they're not based on much of anything. Maybe they're based on the past. Maybe they're not based on the present. I've lived long enough to know how sometimes I can get it wrong. Teachers can get it wrong. You can get it wrong. I can get it wrong. Things are not always what they seem. And people aren't always what we think. The two-way street is in full effect here. The stories that we tell ourselves about others, the stories that we know others are telling themselves about us. You hear the admonition all the time. Don't listen to what other people say. Forget what other people think. We, okay, we all hear this. Well, to what degree we hear this and to what degree we agree with that is largely individual. You know, I chuckle at the person who constantly is, is, planting their flag and making declarations about how they don't care what anybody thinks or says. That just seems very curious to me. The translation for me is it, it seems to me that these are the people that are completely obsessed, completely fixated on what everybody is saying about them or what everybody's thinking about them, what everybody's feeling about them. I mean, why else give it all that much airtime? I mean, I've already shown you that I do care what others think because, well, I wanted to please teachers in school. I don't want to create enemies. I don't want to get in trouble. Well, not intentionally anyway. And I don't want anybody to think ill of me. Oh, some people do. It can't be hell. If you're going to live life and you, well, if you're going to live life and you're going to accomplish anything, people are going to think ill of you, whether it's jealousy, whether it's any number of feelings that people can have, it just comes with life and living. I get it. But as a human, I'm, I don't, I don't, I'm not looking to create that influence and impact are always, and have always been at the forefront of my mind. I care about the stories people tell themselves and tell others about me. It's not about me, but at the same time, it is about me. Now, do I do this to the point that I'm paralyzed? No, of course not. The point, the point is it does have some impact though, in my life, I do give it some consideration. It seems to me that the people that give that no consideration are people that could care less about their influence. Don't care about the impact. 
They only care about themselves. Well, I want to consider it. Absolutely. So I want to think about it. I want to be mindful of it. I want to be thoughtful about it. Okay. True. Sometimes I can think about it a lot. Other times. Okay. Not so much. It depends. I'm extraordinarily self-reflective. I'm, I'm going to be the first to reach for the mirror. One of my many curses is that I own it. Even when it's not mine to own. I learned many, many years ago that our strength can become our weakness and it can become our biggest weakness. And this is one of mine. That proverbial empathy meter that I would peg if such a meter existed, putting myself into the other person's shoes is very, very easy for me. It's natural. It's a default behavior. I don't work at it. It just happens. And so rather than feeling victimized, if somebody treats me poorly, I'm too busy trying to figure out what's going on with them that caused it and what might I have done to provoke it. Playing the part of the victim, that just has never entered my mind, does not enter my mind. It is just not a choice that I ever consider any more than I would consider my need for money to be solved by robbing somebody. So my default behavior is I just internalize it. And what that means is sometimes I can consume myself with negativity, trying to accept responsibility for something that is not my responsibility because it's not my life. (laughs) And there's no doubt. Sometimes it can morph into blaming myself as well. And I bring that up not to overly share, but to wonder aloud with you about people who choose to think that others are victimizing them. I mean, like, like the woman at the podcasting conference. So Ben Shapiro shows up and he, he is, he is there to traumatize her. And I have, I've watched a lot of hours of Ben Shapiro and I've got enough empathy. I can empathize with the person that does not agree with him, but I, 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 to say that he is traumatizing, you talk about a, Talk about a gross overstatement, but if you are bent on being the victim, which I have a real difficult time understanding, even with my empathy, I choose to think of how others can help me correct some misconceptions, how I can engage in questions and discover more accurately what might be going on with them rather than just assuming that I know because curiosity Again, is a it's a natural default kind of a thing. Questions just leap to my mind. I've been in enough business meetings and settings where the expression of an opinion was foremost on a lot of people's minds. It's just not where my head goes. My mind immediately goes to what questions what questions would I like answered? Because I don't yet know. I need more information. And I've always found it fascinating people that they have zero curiosity, but they've got, they've got the opinion meter pegged for the past six years or so. I have worked more diligently to surround myself with people who can help me. Okay. Well, that's not entirely true. I've done this since I was about 14. 
younger, really, but in earnest, about 14. I began to establish some relationships with some men, many years my senior, and particularly church men from about the age of 14, 13, 14. My habit has always been to seek out wisdom. And it's not because I'm bright. It's not because I'm talented. It's because I'm lazy. It's because I don't want to learn it the hard way. I don't want to have to step in it myself. If you've stepped in it, I want to know about your experience and stepping in it. Where did you step in it? How'd that happen? Now that you know you did step in it, how, how could you have avoided that? I want to learn. And that's always been my habit. I've been intentional about it all my life. But as I've gotten older and as I've lost a bunch of old men in my life, I have found myself needing to be very diligent about who gets into the circle. And I'd love to tell you that I've been able to make some terrific additions, but sometimes addition comes by subtraction. What I've been able to do over the last six years or so, well, in large part, death has taken, has taken the biggest portion of them, but I've been able to virtually eliminate from the circle. And in some cases people have opted out, which is fine. It's for everybody to decide. People make a big difference for us and they can make a big positive difference for us, but they can also make a big, big negative difference for us. And I have gotten very intentional about the biggest positive differences being made by only the safest, best people for us. The people who absolutely have our best interest at heart. And I've discovered experience teaches you this. Not everybody does. That's fine. Now, what are you going to do with it? Cause it's your life. This is your story. How do you want to write this story? I made up my mind that the story I'm going to write is not going to involve those people. That's just my choice. I'm not saying it's the right one for you. And then I started thinking about habitual behavior. Habitual behavior is repeated. But the same thing goes for our thinking, habitual thinking. And that's why we have to harness greater control over how we think about other people and how we allow the way other people to think about us, how we let that impact us. I'm not saying that you can control what other people think about you. Can you control your influence? Can you recover? If you, if you step in it, can you fix it? You should try. But at the end of the day, people are going to think what they're going to think. And you have to live with yourself. You know, if those folks who hate us can impact us, then it stands to reason that if we surround ourselves with more people who believe in us, well, we could be positively impacted. So the question is, where are you going to spend your time? It's completely up to you. Are you going to spend your time fretting about the folks who hate you? Are you going to spend your time fretting about the folks that don't like you very much? Are you going to spend your time with people that may not have the greatest story to tell about you to themselves or even to others? Are you going to be more purposeful to engage with people who encourage you and who help you? These are all choices that every one of us can make. And we need to pick one and let the other one go because, well, we learn from each other. We tend to reflect one another. And so we have to carefully consider that when we form the circle of our friends. 
we bring our children up and we teach them the same thing. Unfortunately, sometimes we don't protect ourselves as we should as adults. First Corinthians 15 verse 33, be not deceived. Evil companionships corrupt good morals. And yet many times we're deceived because, well, we think they won't, they're not going to influence me. They're not going to impact us. Or we get really delusional and think, oh, well, listen, my good's going to rub off on them. They won't rub off on me. Those are the famous last words of a lot of foolish people. The stories that others may create and that others may tell about us. I'm not talking about rumors. I'm not talking about gossip. I'm not talking about bad mouthing that frequent many conversations. I'm talking about how other people view us, what story they are telling themselves about who we are or who they think we are. And I will tell you that it's a double, it's a double-sided coin here. These stories are both important and meaningless at the same time. They are important because we care about our influence. Well, I, I, I'm proposing that we should. We should care about our influence. We want to have a positive impact as much as possible. And if you want to have influence, well, you can't just live for yourself and you can't just, you know, plant your flag in the ground and make a declaration that you don't care what anybody thinks. And so these stories important and meaningless, meaningless in the sense that we can't let others dictate our story because each one of us, we are our own head writer. Now that doesn't mean that nobody else is involved in our story. I'm married to the same woman for going on 45 years. So I have a co-author. Her name is Rhonda. There are many things in my life. I can't write my story without her. Well, I could, but it would be colossally wrong and selfish. She's not the head writer of my story. I am. I mean, besides, she's busy being the head writer of her own story. But I am head writer of my story, and I am co-author in her story. And hopefully we care enough about each other, but not enough to acquiesce our lives to each other because it's not even possible. Each one of us is responsible for our own lives and we bear responsibility for how we influence one another. Well, let's talk about ourselves. This is a real point of it all. The stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves, this creates the story that we write the story that the rest of the world sees self-talk. Well, some people call it head trash. There are plenty of phrases that we use that illustrate just how powerful we know words in our head are because they provide us with belief. Robert Duvall, he plays a character named Hub in the, in the movie Secondhand Lions. Secondhand Lions. It's the story of, of a 14-year-old named Walter. Walter has got this ne'er-do-well mom. And she takes him and drops him off to spend the summer with his great uncles. It's a couple of old bachelors, Garth, who is played by Michael Caine and hub who's played by Robert Duvall. And there's this poignant line by Robert Duvall's character to young Walter. 
And he says, sometimes the things that may or may not be true are the things a man needs to believe in the most that people are basically good, that honor, courage, and virtue mean everything that power and money, money and power mean nothing that good always triumphs over evil. And I want you to remember this, that love, true love never dies. You remember that boy. You remember that doesn't matter if it's true or not. You see, a man should believe in those things because those are the things worth believing in. A man should believe those things. He says, because those are the things worth believing in. And there's the rub figuring out the things worth believing in because that will determine our story. Now that may explain why I am constantly trying to lean into optimism, which I just think is a component of wisdom. It's a choice. Some part of it is my default. It's my natural wiring. And it's not manifested in some kumbaya. It's not manifested in always looking on the bright side because I'm not that guy. Here's how my optimism is manifested by default, though, natural wiring. I think things will be better, and I think things can be made better. I instinctively try to figure out how to help make things better. I instinctively, I instinctively think this can, this will be better. Maybe with every force or inclination, there's some counter force or inclination because I also naturally tend to think of all the things that can go wrong. And so here I am trapped between these two pulls, optimism and hope versus, well, this won't work at all. (laughs) Well, you know what this does? It does the same thing in your head. It gives me a choice. We all have a choice. It's what life is about. Life is about choices. Our choices determine our destiny, our story, specifically the choices that we make in what we're going to believe because, well, our beliefs drive our behavior. So it matters what we think. When Walter first arrives to the grand uncles, and this is just a, it's a dilapidated rundown farm in Texas. And he's sitting out on the porch and he asked these old men, I mean, he's just been dropped off and he's got no clue about this way of life. And he asked, can he go inside and watch TV? And Michael Caine's character says, ain't got no TV. (laughs) Well, it turns out they didn't have, they didn't have much of anything that would interest a teenage boy. Hub, he tells Walter, if you need something, you best find it yourself or even better learn to do without it. You know, we're busy trying to find it, but leaning toward wisdom is this collective effort toward individual outcomes, your life, your choices, your story, my life, my choices, my story. We're just, we're just sharing some stuff here. Not telling anybody, listen, get in line behind me and do what I say and follow in my footsteps. No, if I can provide something that you can learn from, then great and wonderful. I learned that I should believe in optimism when it dawned on me that my time spent thinking belongs to me, belongs to me. 
at some point in my life, it, you know, it dawned on me, you know, whenever this, what could go wrong thinking, whenever that dominates my mind, I don't know about you, but that just does not feel good for me. It does not feel good for me to just keep rolling over in my mind. All the things that can go wrong. It's depressing. There have been times in my life. I will freely tell you there've been some times recently in my life where it just drives me to despair. And I just, thankfully, I eventually, I get to this point where I realize, you know, I've got to choose different thoughts. I've got to choose thoughts of optimism. And when I do that, every single time I do that, it's much better. And it's not much better because, well, things turn out much better. Who cares how they turn out? The time spent writing the story is much better because the story is much better. I may be like you, you know, I learned about self-fulfilling prophecies when I was a freshman in college. It was a psychology class. I don't know that I'd ever heard that terminology before self-fulfilling prophecies. It, it seemed to me that what I was thinking couldn't possibly determine the outcome of everything but it couldn't determine the outcome of anything beyond my control, but it could most certainly determine my choices, my decisions, my behavior. And those most certainly I knew as a young person, those would absolutely contribute to my outcome. Leaning toward wisdom compelled me to choose what I thought and to opt for thinking about what I've come to call the ideal outcome not the worst. Now I'd love to tell you that I'm proficient at the art of optimism. I'm not, I will tell you, I'm a practicing optimist, heavy emphasis on the word practicing, because after all this time you would think, well, he ought to have that down by now. I don't. And it just goes to show you how hard it is to control your thoughts especially when it's much easier to think or to assume the worst. That path is easier for all of us. That is the path of least resistance to think about the worst thing that can happen. Convincing ourselves of how things might go south is way easier than convincing ourselves how things might work out perfectly just the way we want. Because in our minds, pessimism just seems so much more likely, right? It just, it's like, it's way more probable that I'm going to fail than I'm going to succeed. And I, th I think many of us think like that. Have you ever asked yourself why? Why, why do you think that? Why does failure seem more likely? Well, because we can easily remember the failures. They scare us. They mar us. They scar us, even the small ones. And you know what? We can easily forget the successes, especially the small ones, the ordinary ones. Is there an ordinary failure? No, but we're all forgetful. And we can all be prone to be neglectful of the gratitude that we ought to have for our successes. And maybe we ought to examine our definition of success, too. Rather than some grand plan coming to fruition, success could be as simple as 
being able to breathe. I encountered a gentleman the other day and we're having this conversation. He tells me about, you know, he's had some health diagnosis and he's been this long sufferer of, of this breathing disorder whose name escapes me. There's a commercial on TV and it shows an elephant sitting on somebody's chest and, you know, and he has this condition. I mean, the simple act of breathing, I could easily say, well, that's success. Another day of life, more chances to figure things out and get better, more opportunities to be a good influence on other people, enough food to eat, enough water to drink. I'm still fascinated by the number of people on this planet who have to walk miles to drink, to get water that they can drink. And it ain't anywhere near as clean as the water that comes out of your tap. What about enough clothing to wear? What about enough shelter, protect ourselves from the weather? Simple things, staples of life. All these things that we take for granted while we are languishing over something that seems to matter more, but does what matters more than your ability to breathe? What matters more than your ability to have food? What matters more than your ability to drink water? to have clothing, to have shelter, remove these things. See how good your life is. See how long your life lasts. I know we don't think about those things being successes, but they are another choice, a choice to be thankful, a choice to express our gratitude or a choice to focus on our lack. Well, I've got food, but I'm not real wild about the food I've got. Well, I've got water, but I don't want water. I want something else. I want something tastier than water. So we can focus on our thankfulness and our gratitude, or we can focus on all the things that we don't have that we wish we did have because, well, they've got it. All the things that we want, and we can lament that life, you know, life is not what we hoped it would be. Our life is a failure. We can choose what we will believe. And we can choose what we will believe in. And it determines the story that we're going to write. The story that we're writing in our head first. Things like this aren't cut and dried. You know, rarely are things just so binary as to be one thing. You know, we can't merely think our way toward improvement. I mean, if that were the case, then it'd be easy. Everybody would do it. And besides, sometimes taking action changes our thoughts and beliefs not the other way around. During my years of leading retail companies, superior customer service, it was always the priority. It was the thing. And folks who answered the phones were coached to smile before you answer the phones. Now, callers can't see you, but you can hear a smile in somebody's voice. It was a fundamental principle of acting the way that you want to be so you can become that way. And so by smiling, people behaved more friendly on the phone. They were more pleasant. It was a simple action that we could easily coach and one that they could easily practice. And it was also one that we could easily observe. Now we could have told these people, listen, change the way you're thinking about customers. Don't think of them as intrusions. Think of them as opportunities. And that was certainly preached. But it was just one component of the strategy to deliver excellent customer service. 
smiling was a simple behavior, a simpler accomplishment that people could choose to do before answering the phones. You know, weight loss, weight loss is a multi-billion dollar industry. Millions of people struggle with it. It's difficult, desirable, but difficult. Changing beliefs and thinking may not be the path forward for everybody. You know, some people might benefit from just diving headlong into changing their behavior. What if I'm 50 pounds overweight and I don't fret too much about my thinking or my belief? I just know that I'd like to be more fit. I'd like to be trimmer, fitter. What if I just start behaving the way thinner, more fit people behave? What if I start eating better? What if I start exercising more? What if I put less on my plate? Over time, my beliefs and my thinking are likely to change, especially if I continue to change that behavior so that it begins to give me results. And so while we're focused today on the story we tell ourselves, part of that story is how we behave because we're going to be judged on what we do. We're going to be judged on how we behave, on how we act by God and by other people. So what we do matters. It may be that there are changes in your behavior that can be as simple as smiling. And those changes in behavior could positively influence your thoughts and beliefs. Roll it all up into one big ball and you've got your story. You know, some people may think that it's a sappy story, but I, I loved the I loved the movie Secondhand Lions. I'd been working on today's show for weeks and weeks, and for some reason, I thought about I thought about Hub's line in the movie, and I clearly didn't have it devoted to memory. So I searched for it online. Well, I, I I searched for a streaming service so I could watch the movie again first movie came out in about 2003 can't remember when i had seen it last but i watched it again just days ago and it reinforced the things that i had been crafting to create today's show walter the little boy this is the same uh character by the way the same actor who played that little boy in the sixth sense and walter and he's he, terrific he was terrific in both these walter this little boy he was taught by these two old grand uncles what to believe and what to believe in and yet even at the age of 14 when he arrived at their farm he had the power to choose for himself and so he did he took actions that were congruent with those beliefs we all do for Walter, it changed everything, just as it had for his uncles, Hub and Garth. It changed who he was. It changed how he lived. It changed the story that he wrote. Watching and listening to old men, well, that helped. For me, the long and short of it is 
we've just got to be way more careful about what we think. And maybe we need to hit a pause button and say, why, why am I thinking this? Why, why am I thinking that instead of this working out swimmingly, this is not going to go well? Because if you examine it closely enough, like I continue to try to examine that in my own life, it's not based on evidence. It's not even based on past failures versus successes. It's based on the fact that I may overemphasize the failures. And every single time, I, for myself, I come to the same conclusion. I'm ungrateful. I'm self-centered. When I can conquer those two things, when I can fix those two things, for me, it seems to make a positive difference. When I can embrace being more thankful and more grateful, and yeah, it helps to get on bended knee. When I can begin to enumerate all the many things for which I have to be thankful to God Almighty. There aren't enough hours in the day. And it changes everything. Stories we tell ourselves, they matter. Because it's those stories that we're writing that can help us benefit somebody else potentially writing a better story for themselves not letting us do it for them but letting us have a powerful impact to help them be better writers i've had teachers that helped me write better i've had teachers who helped me think better i've had old men in my life who helped me think better I've had a lot of people who helped me learn things that I couldn't have otherwise learned. They've all contributed to the story, but it's me who's sitting down at the desk with a pen in hand writing my own. Own it. My name is Randy Cantrell. Leaning toward wisdom, modern tales of an ancient pursuit. I hope you'll tell a friend about the show. Greetings and welcome inside the Yellow Studio. Studio.